The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. Good evening, listeners. You've just heard Club Integral and you're now listening to Very Loose Women on Resonance 104.4 FM. We're absolutely delighted to be joined by some members and founders of the direct action feminist performance group Speaking of Imelda, which campaigns on abortion rights focusing on Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So, hi guys, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. I think we're just going to hear something that maybe relates a bit to your group now. We still have it. Attitudes embedded from the pulpits. So actually, we've got some members, as I said, of Speaking of Imelda. Could you just briefly tell us what we just listened to? This is a anthem that was written by a group in Dublin called Fierce Mild, and um, it's about uh, women rising up, <laughs> uh, like we tried to do, uh, to fight for uh, reproductive rights. Great. First, I should reintroduce everyone. So I'm Emma, as I am every week, and I'm also joined by... Leo, the we've same every week as well. Yeah, and we've got two... Two friends in the studio, um, Eliza and Owen. Hi, guys. Hi. Who might be chipping in a bit later. Um, and also, of course, you've got our members and founding members of um, Speaking of Imelda. So first things first, can you tell us a bit about the group and what does the Imelda stand for? Well, Imelda stands for Ireland making England the legal destination for abortion. And as it happens, there's an expression in Ireland when people don't want to say something out loud, they might say, oh, speaking of Imelda. You know, you might say it in front of a child or something when you didn't want them to know you were talking about their birthday present. So during the period <laughs> where um, it was it was illegal to um, ask about abortion or give information about abortion, when people needed to call here, and remember we're talking about the time before mobi- mobile phones, when people might have to use the public phone in a shop or their auntie's phone or something to call London, uh, they might say, you know, oh, speaking of Imelda, to the people on the other end of the phone. So Imelda was really a sort of a code word and uh, then when uh, speaking of Imelda started as a group in London uh, people sat down and very cleverly worked out just what was going on politically and what we are doing is actually speaking of the fact that for 60 odd years 50 odd years is it since the 1967 Act Ireland has been making England the legal destination for abortion the abortion rate in Ireland hasn't really changed Mm. it's just that um, nobody likes to talk about the fact that uh, women are inconvenienced by having to come here 
in order for um, some people who don't want to have to talk about it. How many women do you think that would be? Would that be around, is it? Well, we reckon it's 12 women a day. Also, what needs to be taken into account in those figures is that many people might not give mm. uh, an Irish address and they might try and use an English address. So the, those numbers are likely to be higher. They go up and down. For example, we uh, know that lots of people are using the pill, uh, the abortion pill that they get online. Now, it's illegal. It's illegal in the north of Ireland, but people are using it because, you know, obviously if... Well, why not if you can use it? But um, that obviously affects the numbers of people who are coming here. The other thing that um, made a lot of difference was um, when they had what was called the Celtic Tiger, the big economic boom in Ireland, uh, which coincided with the period of mobile phones and Ryanair flights. Prior to that, people would have had to come on a boat, make all their arrangements by telephone, you know, fixed line telephones and come here and maybe not be able to find their way very easily. All of that was very cumbersome. Then you had this period where there was a lot of credit and people were able to come. And remember, the Republic of Ireland especially doesn't have um, an NHS in the way we have here. People have health insurance. So, you know, your affairs aren't private. Um, in, in, in that sense. So um, for a long time then, you know, and then suddenly with the recession, people weren't able to afford to come. If a, a woman in Ireland is needing an abortion, what are the kind of, what's the process she would have to go through to obtain that? She basically have to travel to England in, in the first instance and raise the funds to get to England and maybe arrange childcare, arrange time of work, uh, depending on her circumstances. In other cases, particularly with women who don't have uh, who have residency status, where they may not be able to leave the country, they have no options to get out other than to try and illegally import the abortion pill. Um, I think the tragedy of Ireland's laws are that women are forced to travel. It's very costly. They often have to do it secretly, um, but also that these laws impact on the most vulnerable. So women who don't have financial means and then women who, due to their residency status, are not able to travel. Yeah, well, I was just going to add that the other thing is that the law is nobody knows where it ends and begins, so everybody's insecure. And the reason is that there's a clause was put into the Irish Constitution uh, back in 1983 which requires the state to vindicate the right, the equal right to life of the fetus. Well, the fetus can't be equal to the woman that it's dependent on. So the vindicating of the fetus's life often has meant putting the woman's life in danger. And the thing is that the interpretation of that keeps on changing so that medics are often afraid. So probably lots of people will have heard of a woman called Savita Halapanavar, who was um, a, d a dentist who really was pleased to be pregnant. And uh, when she discovered she was miscarrying, went to a hospital. Well, back in the 1960s, before for this um, amendment in the Constitution, the medical practice would have been the woman's having a miscarriage, help the miscarriage along, prevent infection, save the woman's life, and sure, sure, maybe she'll be pregnant again soon. What did they do then? They wouldn't give her the abortion. Why? Because they felt that they could hear a heartbeat and somebody was afraid that somebody would take a case under the Constitution. And so a woman who was miscarrying was left to develop an infection and she died of septicemia. So there were other small human error things in it, but essentially that's the case. And there have been a number of other cases where um, you know there's been sudden new developments in the law. I think the X case was one of them, wasn't it? Just, to, just for maybe some of our listeners, a lot of people wouldn't know. So we've talked about how difficult it is to get an abortion if you're living in Ireland. Can we just compare that maybe to if you need to get an abortion in England, Scotland or Wales, what is the process you have to go through? Well, in England, you would presumably take a pregnancy test. You might do one yourself or you might go to a clinic and have one. And then if you decided that uh, you, you, you know, it wasn't right for you to continue with the pregnancy, either 
if it was a health issue, you know, you're probably your medics would probably advise you what was the likelihood of the fetus surviving and whether you should try and terminate. Uh, but if it was, uh, you know, a feeling that you, it wasn't right for you at this stage, then um, two medical, two doctors have got to sign to say that they think that this would be, um, you know, there's a legal thing, but that this would be um, the way to go. And once that paper is signed, then you can have counselling and uh, go ahead and have a termination. So you can have a termination here on the NHS at very early stages, you know, then you recover and, and that's fine. You have no difficulty in terms of any disclosures to your doctors or any other medics. And Whereas people who come from free. Ireland are very afraid very often. It's free, safe and legal. And I think that's the, the big difference here and it's accessible and what uh, it's worth highlighting here that women from Northern Ireland who are UK citizens uh, have to travel to England to access safe and legal abortion services but they cannot access them on the NHS they have to pay privately I think I was kind of aware of that but I was reading that today and I was really surprised by the fact that you could be part of Great Britain and Northern Ireland come to come to the you know, come to England and then still not qualify for the services mm. that everyone else from the same union is is getting. And I just, I just think that it's worth highlighting. Because the 67 Act wasn't extended to the North of Ireland. Right. And at the time, the North of Ireland was ruled by the Stormont government. Mm. So um, when direct rule was brought in, uh, in the early 1970s, uh, the legislation wasn't extended. And there were lots of people saying it should have been. Uh, but essentially, what keeps abortion illegal in the north of Ireland is a f the fundamentalist, a very fundamentalist Protestant belief in the dominant political parties there. And they're very closely related to the people who were behind the referendum that brought in the amendment to the Constitution in the Republic of Ireland. And they're also very closely related to the anti-abortion lobby in America. So, you know, they are part of a big evangelical, very politically motivated, very well-tuned alliance. What are kind of the aims of your group and how how do you try and achieve those aims? So I think there's something quite special about what you guys do. Yeah, um, so what we began firstly as a group of everyday women that were just fed up sitting around talking uh, about these issues and getting angry about them and we really wanted to get out there and do something. And so um, we started originally by calling a meeting and we invited Anne Rossiter, who was a former member of Irish uh, Women's Abortion Support Group and author of um, Ireland's Hidden Diaspora, which is a book that tells the story of Irish Women's Abortion Support Group, a group of activists uh, who were in operation from 1980s until 2000, and they provided bed and board for women travelling and picked them up at stations and arranged clinic um, appointments. And so we got together as a group, but one of the things, we wanted to do something different. So we decided to use performance and creativity with in our group because really what we felt we wanted to operate against the shaming and the silencing of abortion as an issue. We wanted to be unapologetic, uh, cheeky, audacious even. <laughs> <laughs> and so we s used performance style intervention to kind of burst into the debate unannounced and uninvi uninvited. <laughs> we didn't ask for permission and we felt it was really important as a group of women to to show put our bodies and ourselves into into the battle in that kind of way and to kind of contribute through using those kind of skills and so we kind of 
pop up uninvited <laughs> as what I would call the unleased voice of the Irish diaspora. <laughs> so the first um, thing we did was um, there was a conference on. We were supposed to be uh, politically engaged Catholics and they were holding a conference and they were going to be very radical about things like the economics and all of the rest of it, but they weren't going to touch women's issues. And they had the nerve to hold it in the Irish Centre on International Women's Day and they didn't even seem to have one woman speaker on the platform. Wow. So we were all facing the prospect of if we wanted to do anything about it going along and sitting there all day long and arguing and then these clever young women came in with this idea so that um, the skills of performance and the skills of camera work and all of the rest of it were employed and so the first video shows a door opening in this room where this event is going on the person with the cameras come in already and, and put themselves in position the door opens and in come six women dressed all in red and hauling suitcases and the suitcases are to visibilize um, it was something that was done by it was Emma Campbell in Ireland and Siobhan Clancy and Siobhan Clancy they decided that they would dress women in red and give them suitcases and walk them around the ports and the airports and film them and this is to kind of make visible the fact that in every crowd there are some women who are going not for fun or whatever but they're going for abortions so um, six women came stood at the top of the room nobody knew what was going on they thought this must be something to do with this event and so we stood there and we banged our suitcases on the floor a number of times we had a little bell that went ding ding to sound religious and then we each had had a little piece to say. So, you know, each letter of Imelda Ireland making England the legal destination for abortion said our piece. And before we had done even three minutes, we had had, they're not your bodies. Abortion is murder. You're taking up too much time. I mean, this is our, this isn't fair. This is our event. And then we kind of banged our things on the floor and off we went. Uh, and as we were going, people, some people clapped. So for that, we had a video. And we put the video up on the internet and loads of people were looking at it. So instead of having to stay there all day, listen to these people, we got a chance to go in, do yeah. our thing, put it up on the internet, put some music, and it was great fun. Yeah. And so that's the style of things that we've done since. And it's so much fun. It really is. But the best one of all. Ah. <laughs> well, yes, one of our, our more uh, outrageous stunts shall we say, was when the Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach as he is named in Ireland, uh, was coming to London to hold a fundraising dinner in the Crownmorn Hotel in... Cricklewood. Uh, yeah, Cricklewood. Uh, <laughs> so we uh, managed to get two tickets into the event and we had just started a campaign called Knickers for Choice where we were encouraging people to hang up knickers with pro-choice slogans written on them in public. And so two of us got into the event while we had other women outside dressed in red trying to sell knickers <laughs> uh, to uh, the attendees of this dinner. And so we uh, managed to get, walk right up to the Irish Prime Minister and slap a knickers on his table, which uh, um, had the slogan Reple Repeal the Eighth uh, uh, written on it, which is a reference to the big campaign in Ireland to repeal the Eighth Amendment before we were dragged out of the building and we set off rape alarms. And so, of course, <laughs> it was all filmed and there was a beautiful video on the internet which uh, has had, oh, I think probably 80-odd thousand people have looked at it. And, you know, that was really powerful. So, I mean, now we think so easily of Knickers for Choice, but a lot of people... Um, involved in campaigns in both parts of Ireland were a little hesitant at that. It was, um, oh, but we've got to keep um, 
the debate respectable and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. And I think one of the things that speaking of Imelda's managed to do is tear the heart out of that and sort of say, look, we're talking about human sexuality. We're talking about people who don't want the consequences of human sexuality talked about because it's inconvenient for them. And then the people who bear the burden of that inconvenience are women who live in Ireland, whoever they are. But the people who suffer the most are the poor ones people who have no papers to travel, people who are unwell, all of these kind of things, you know. So we're just trying to take the lid off that and do it in a way that, um, well, what we've noticed is sometimes when we call on people to do things like the Knickers for Choice, they don't do it under the name of their campaign. They have a new group or, a, you know, a, a mysterious group that does it. But then after a while, everybody starts imitating the stuff, you know, and people are borrowing from one another. Mm. So in a sense, it's given this great energy and it's given a great visibility to what we're saying and it's giving a language which is so important and what kind of reactions have you had then from members of the public or <laughs> otherwise? well we often get told it's not the time or the place <laughs> <laughs> ladies girls and uh, almost as if to say pop back into the kitchen and uh, cook me dinner and i think we sometimes get reactions like that but we also get a lot of support and uh, particularly from women who are, are pleased and enjoy the tactic and enjoy our cheekiness and the audacity of uh, the kind of stuff that we do. So we do get a lot of support. But yeah, it's quite interesting um, that we will get um, reactions that are kind of like, that's not the time and place. Because we do tend to pop up at events uninvited, like we generally turn up at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in uh, London, we've turned up in Dublin at the, uh, the 1916 uh, celebrations and we tend to make our presence known. When and when the Irish it. president came on the first ever Irish official visit to London, we went to the Irish embassy and we picketed. And it was mm. actually a policewoman who said to us, this is hardly the time or the place. And we were saying, well, actually, it's exactly the, the time, time or the place <laughs> because this, this whole visit is about the relationship between Ireland and Britain. And this whole treatment of abortion is absolutely key. And what has happened up to now is that the gender aspects of the relationship between Ireland and Britain have kept, been kept quiet because some of the other issues have been so difficult, you know, when there was kind of a war and, a, you know, people were getting killed and all of that and sort it, of stuff. Yeah. When there was a lot of hostility towards Irish people it was really hard to kind of talk about things that were critical of Ireland because the context that they were falling into just really didn't work but one of the things that is interesting in terms of reaction is that you mentioned this thing that we did at the GPO in Dublin where we stood and we read you know the 1916 rising was kind of the key established action in establishing the Irish state and uh, the year in 2015, we went and stood on the steps where the proclamation of the Irish Republic had been read and we read a proclamation, a choice proclamation. And one of the things about that that was fascinating was the street, there was a huge big event going on. We thought that the police would try and arrest us. In fact, when the police saw us coming, they kind of walked the other direction very, very quickly so that they wouldn't have to do anything. People came over and were really, really interested. But one of the things we noticed was because there was no advance notice of what we were doing, the anti-abortion lobby hadn't managed to get their people out there. We experienced absolutely no hostility. There were a few people who questioned us a little bit sharply, but really people were very supportive. Some people said, can I please stand next to you and read this with you? Can I get my photograph mm. taken with you? And we found um, we did the same kind of thing with the Rosa Tralee Festival. 
we went there and we held a rogue Rose of Tralee festival and that people joined in and really enjoyed it and two things happened as a result of that one again we showed this thing that actually the pro-abortion the anti-abortion uh, lobby um, is, is not huge at all and it's not really emotionally supported by an awful lot of people but the other thing that we showed was we did that as a kind of a skit the following year an actual rose from Australia was in the competition and she wore a red dress and she spoke about the need for Ireland to change its laws on abortion. So I would think that at some stage she saw what we had done or heard about it, although there was no direct communication between us. And I think these kind of influences are actually up in the ante. And uh, there are very few places in Ireland now where you can't take And I, I think one of the things that the group does particularly well and that we enjoy doing is is taking down and poking fun at, uh, you know, these very gendered cultural stereotypes of femininity and we play with those kind of concepts. So the Rose of Tralee uh, um, is very much a lovely girls festival where the Irish diaspora are invited back home to participate in this pageant and they're judged based on their loveliness and their Irishness and you know all of this kind of stuff so we very much play sense, with yeah. that kind of sense. Mm, yeah. mm. And that's incredibly brave then that, that, that you kind of maybe possibly inspired someone to then as a lovely lady rose mm. or whatever you want to call them, yeah, then to talk we about were abortion. We blown away. The fact that she wore a red dress, you just a couldn't real miss rogue the connection. <laughs> she did the red which was grand. Do you feel uh, like it's kind of the movement's building momentum? Oh, yes, massively so. Um, in, in the Republic of Ireland, the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment has gone from strength to strength and there's there's groups operating in every corner of the country. Um, the abortion rights campaign has been fantastic there. There's lots of different activities and lots of different groups mm. activated. And yeah, I think all of these diverse actions will come together and create change. We actually got invited to do a performance in the, a university in the west of Ireland last year as part of the... They were marking both the 100 years of the Irish state, but also 20 years since the closure of the last Magdalene Laundry in Ireland, you know the Magdalene mm -hmm. Laundries? And so um, the way in which uh, the abortion issue now has been placed is that it's part of that whole chain of events uh, about how the Irish state treated women and how things were kept quiet and all kinds of things were silent. And so a lot of people now are seeing this as kind of opening the debate up. Mm. And we learn and are inspired by what people there are doing and I think internationally as well as a group in London yeah, now. Yeah, there's a great sense of solidarity and uh, I think that's really crucial yeah. in a campaign like that and what's also really crucial is that you have a diversity of forms of activism from people who lobby po uh, politicians to people who knock on doors and have one-to-one -one conversations to people who sit down with their family at dinner and uh, and raise the issue and try to talk about it and you know all of these diverse forms of activism are needed and they work together because on the internet yeah. what do they call it is it the international day of choice when they have these demonstrations in september the last one they had in ireland was huge and was it the one before that where you did the, the sprinkle the... We dressed uh, up as bishops. Oh, the march for choice. So we got people to dress up as bishops mm. and in big high hats so that they looked huge, right? Mm -hmm. And they stood up and they... Um, you know the words, you know how this the wording went, don't you? Well, we basically... We lifted the wording of mass and we we preached to the converted which was the pro-choice crowd mm -hmm. <laughs> by li addressed as female bishops and and basically said to them that uh, 
you have authority vested in yourselves, go forth and march for choice and and took the kind of archaic language of, of the mass ceremony to to reappropriate it and give power back to the people. Because so much of that will have gone unconsciously into people's heads. And as you watch the video of it on Facebook, you know, you see that a lot of people are hearing this and they're kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. And then suddenly they're actually really listening. And then apparently afterwards they were going up to the bishops and asking to be blessed and forgiven (laughs) and all of these kind of things. So there is something about actually literally acting out Mm. some of that. I've heard on the reproductive rights grapevine that um speaking of Imelda are masters of wordplay <sighs> and just that in terms of your reappropriation of potentially patriarchal and political Irish songs there's been some quite witty lyricism and um switching around of lyrics so I was wondering if you had any examples of your wordsmithery <laughs> <laughs> we did one on the con- on the on the um the um what do you call it the proclamation didn't we Yes, we're really Irish beautiful. men and Irish women, because it goes Irish men and Irish women in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she draws a long tradition, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And what did we do? Irish men and Irish women. And we went mm-hmm. on about choice. Mm-hmm. And then we listed out all the different cases that had taken place. And when we were doing it, some people thought, oh, you know, you can't talk about A and B and C and D, who, which were all cases where women went mm-hmm. to the courts and took Ireland to courts internationally and established that, the co- that Ireland was in breach of women's rights. Um, and then there was the X case, and then there was the case of Ms. Y, and then there was the woman who had been uh, kept alive, although she was dead, and she was kept alive because she, her, her body was kind of being used as an incubator for a while. And what we realised was that actually people were really listening intently to all of this, you know, and in some cases relatives of people came up and spoke to us and were so pleased that we were mentioning that. But I think there is a long tradition in Ireland. I mean, James Joyce is famous for it, wasn't he? See, James Joyce's attitude was, well, the English language was imposed on Irish people. So therefore, we are entitled to take it up and break it and reshape it. And we take exactly the same point of view. Yeah, to decolonise those songs and... Yeah, to uh, and to do so as women, women as well, yeah. to take yeah. things that and are... And I think this is, like, particularly as a group, we do use a lot of decolonising stra- strategies to take patriarchal language and, and, mm-hmm. and undercut it of its power to control and dominate and restrict women's bodily autonomy. Like Audre Lorde <laughs> said it, didn't she? Your silence will not protect you. You know, and this is something that we have to keep telling ourselves. There's no point in staying quiet. It hasn't achieved anything. And I think the speaking of and speaking of Imelda is like emphasizes our intent to speak up and speak out and not be silent. Absolutely. That's very powerful. Just quickly then, um, anyone listening to the show or people in England or Scotland or Wales, how can they support women in Ireland? Well, on this side, in relation to Northern Ireland, there's a case before the courts now, before the Supreme Court, about the right of women from the North of Ireland, if they do come to England for an abortion, to at least be able to access abortion on the NHS. So it'd be really good for people to lobby on that. Jeremy Hunt moans on, but actually it wouldn't cost a lot of money. And already Nicola Sturgeon has said that Scotland will do their best to, to meet that need. Uh, in the north of Ireland, the law needs to change. Britain, the British government is responsible for upholding the rights of citizens of Britain to uh, what you call them, reproductive rights. And that includes protection from, uh, you know, unsafe abortion. So the British government owes it to the people of Northern Ireland to provide that, even if the government of Northern Ireland doesn't want to do it. So there's two areas where people can help. There's another area where people can help. There's an abortion support network. Yes. And they... Um, 
uh, provide support to people from Ireland who can ring them up and sort of, you know, explain whatever the need is. Maybe they need money, maybe they need help uh, arranging for an abortion. Uh, but they they need both uh, fundraising and practical help in terms of helping people. So there yeah, are a few so things they, that people they can host do. people, they provide financial assistance for those who can't afford to pay. And it's worth pointing out that one of the really terrible thing about what's going on in Northern Ireland and in the South is that uh, people uh, are being delayed in getting access to the services they need. And the longer it's delayed, the, the more costly. expensive and the more complex that the it abortion becomes. is. Yeah. So you can follow us on Twitter and you can follow us on Facebook. We're at, at right. Speak of Imelda. <laughs> Speaking of Imelda on YouTube. See our videos. And you can also follow us, us at VLW Radio and you can listen to all our podcasts on iTunes and ACAST and other places online. I think that's all we've got time Steph for. Definitely we've got time for. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. And we're thank you have all a, our many a guests. Brief, brief extract because we're out of Maybe time. you can introduce what it is very quickly. Well, this is a riff on um, Mrs. Brown's boys thank you very much mrs brown mrs brown there you are yeah i know i haven't seen you for a long after i've been over in england listen here i wanted to ask you do you know you know this repeal the eight what do people in Finglas think of it i was just wondering you know because do you remember now i remember do you remember Mrs. Round in Fingers Park and she died because she had cancer? Her daughter ended up bringing up. Do you remember the young lad? That was the absolute, yeah, right. And then do you remember after that, Mrs. C round and she had cancer and she was pregnant and they didn't treat her. Ah, yeah, I know the child was born all right, but she died soon afterwards. And do you remember, sure, her eldest girl took over the young fella to look after him. And seeing as how she was all caught up with that now, she couldn't look after the other children. Asher to the uh, the young lad, sure, he ended up committing suicide there when he was a teenager. And the girl, do you remember her, the youngster? She, well, I, do, I only remember walking along the street one day and seeing her. And she was all kind of done up in a coat and very, you know, all gone into herself. Like, And I asked my ma, is that her? And she said, oh, she's with the nuns now. She's with the nuns. I sure, God, I didn't know what it meant then that she was in orphan, some bloody orphanage and nobody was really looking after her. I met her, maybe they were looking after her. But anyhow, she and the brother, Asher, all their lives were changed by it and ruined by it. I spent a lot of my time wondering and worrying about my mother. Like I meant to say, if she had got anything the matter with her having another child. And then, you know, you thought it was just your imagination and then you read stuff. You know, about Sheila Hodger and the way they wouldn't treat her cancer because she was pregnant and they wouldn't give her the drugs. Oh, for goodness sake, and we think of all the children that the people had, I didn't need another one. Oh, ah, look, sure, Finglas is a great place. Everybody loves all of the children. But Jesus, you... Yeah, I know, I know the language. But look, you think that when there's a few children who are there, you'd look after the ones that are there and born. Well, I was just wondering whether you'd any idea anyway what people are saying about repealing the Eighth Amendment there. Sure, the Eighth Amendment says that the fetus has got to be protected even at the expense of the mother and it's the state's duty to vindicate the right of the fetus. In the name of all that's high and holy now, how could that be any good to anybody? Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.